Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter. I'm covering in this audio, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. I will entitle this passage, All Scripture is God-Breathed. It contains the famous 2 Timothy 3.16 passage that says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, context is this. In the first nine verses of 2 Timothy 3, Paul has gone on and on about all the evil that is occurring in the last days, and I took that to be the last days of the Jewish kingdom, the last days before the Messiah came, and in more particular, in this case, the, the last days before Jesus completely sets up his kingdom in AD 70 by wiping out the Jews who are opposing his kingdom everywhere, including in Ephesus, where Timothy is as he faces these legalistic Jewish Gnostic type opponents. So we start in verses 10 and 11. You, however, Paul tells Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now when Paul says you, however, he's contrasting Timothy with the false teachers who, like Janus and Jambres, mentioned in the previous verse 9, Janus and Jambres, whose folly would be exposed to all. Well, that's not going to happen to Timothy. He's going to be a good minister and teacher and church leader following the example of the Apostle Paul. Now, notice that Paul told Timothy that you have followed my teaching. That's what what Paul spoke. And also my conduct. That's what Paul did. It was not only his talk, but it was his walk that Timothy imitated or has imitated in the past. And you notice that there's your example of discipleship is modeling, setting an example of the people you follow. Yes, you have to teach them, and Paul mentions that first. You followed my teaching, Timothy, but also you also watch the way I live. My aim in life, my purpose in life, was only to spread the gospel. I was not in this for any kind of financial or human aggrandizement. I was trying to spread the gospel. Paul mentions other things that Timothy has imitated, his faith, his patience, his endurance, in other words, his faith, his belief, his trust in Jesus, his love, his love for everyone in the church, his steadfastness. And when after he mentions steadfastness, he mentions persecutions and sufferings because that's the time when you are likely not to want to be steadfast. You want to waver. But he stood firm in the midst of all that. He mentions particular persecutions, probably the ones that Timothy didn't know about, because he didn't experience them firsthand. Timothy was with Paul most of the time, starting with the second journey. But the persecutions and sufferings that happened to Paul at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra are the persecutions he received on the first journey before Paul knew Timothy. So Paul mentions those. Now let's look at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. That's the area of Timothy's home. Many people say he came from Lystra. The scripture in Acts 13 and 14 is not exactly clear. Somewhere around there, Paul picks up Timothy probably from Lystra, I would think. That was on the second journey. But on the first journey, here are the persecutions that Paul underwent. At Antioch, Acts 13.50, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. That was persecution of the Jews there, and the Gentiles joined in the persecution at Iconium, which is nearby. That was Pisidian Antioch, by the way, in Acts 13, not Syrian Antioch, but Pisidian Antioch in Galatia. We're talking about the middle of Asia Minor. Iconium, which was nearby, Acts 14.5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, the Gentiles are now joining in, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, dot, 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 mistreating and stoned. 
It was an attempt. Fortunately, it was not successful. However, in Lystra, Acts 14:19, it was not successful in Iconium, but in Lystra, Acts 14:19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, followed Paul into the, into the neighboring city of Lystra. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, you can imagine what a horrible experience that was, having big rocks thrown at you, such that you were so wounded that people thought you were dead. That's some serious persecution, folks. Paul says, I endured them. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued Paul, and and it's a good thing that the Lord did rescue him because now we have all the book of Acts and all these letters. We have two-thirds of the New Testament written because Paul had been delivered from these persecutions. Now, Paul says the Lord delivered them from them all, all those persecutions. We need to be careful. Well, that should encourage us when we are in terrible situations and you feel like there's no escape, that should encourage us. But we've got to be careful and not say that that means that that's an ironclad promise to deliver us from every persecution. I mean, Jesus said they're going to persecute you, talking about the Jews, the non-believing Jews. And he says, and some of them, they will, some of you, they will kill. Well, the ones who get killed, that's pretty bad persecution. They weren't delivered. And also Paul himself was not delivered from the his prison cell in Rome in approximately A.D. 64, 65, 66, 67, whenever it was, when he was taken out and killed. At least that's what tradition says, and I think it's pretty reliable. So, we, you know, we need to be careful how to use the Scripture. If it's God's desire to deliver you from persecution, by golly, he can do it. So pray that way, but that doesn't. you need to rest assured to say, hey, but if God decides to let me go under with this thing, he knows what he's doing because he is all he is consumed with love for his children, of which you are one. So he'll take care of you. We go to verse 12, 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's still talking about his example of being persecuted, and Timothy's going to be persecute, persecuted because he's following Paul's example. And you desire to live godly? In Christ Jesus, this world is so nasty and so filthy and so rebellious and so sinful, somebody is going to come after you. You just might as well face it. Now that all, you know, you could interpret that as all without exception. Every single Christian is going to be persecuted. I really don't think that's true, that every single Christian is going to be persecuted. That word all, as you look in the lexicons, it can often mean just many, as in uh, almost all, a whole lot, a whole heap of. And so if Paul's saying that, it means a lot of people who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Either way, I'll tell you one thing. In the early church, they certainly were persecuted. They were persecuted to death. Look at the people in China, the Christians in China. They're being persecuted horribly. Let's look at some scriptures showing that persecution is normal for Christians. This is the normal Christian life, folks. Persecution. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Falsely. They're going to say bad things falsely about you. I remember one time an investment counselor that I was thinking about doing business with. And the investment went sour. And I guess he was trying to absolve himself from blame. I don't know. But I get this email saying that I had mentioned that I was a missionary. And therefore it was obvious that. I was using my religion as an excuse to make money and get rich. And I'll tell you, that was a total, absolute lie. The guy had no occasion to say that, and it was hard for me to forgive him because I'm saying, why why do you say stuff like that? Well, what did Jesus say? 
people are going to say all kinds of evil against you falsely. No master is above his slave. I'm a slave of Jesus. They say bad things about Jesus. They're going to say bad things about me. So get over it, Dan. That's kind of what the attitude you have to take and not be angry at these people. Pray for them. I don't think I prayed for this guy yet. I might need to do that after I shut this audio down. But it's hard when people revile you and say nasty things about you. Paul was reviled. Oh, you're starting a riot. You're trying to put us out of business. You know, all this kind of stuff. Verse 12 is Roman Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Still, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted because they were given the word of God. Because the world is full of evil people who are enemies of God and they're enemies of God's people. John 15, 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So people who don't know God are going to persecute followers of Jesus. Might as well face that fact. John 16:2. they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. John 17:14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The world has hated them. Acts 14:22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, these are apostles, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, etc., etc., etc. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, hey, it's got a purpose. It's going to make us hard. It's going to make us soldiers of Christ. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. That's the good news is the glorification at the end of our life. But in this life, you're going to have to face suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's the good news again. A lot of glory at the end of all this suffering, which by comparison is light compared to the glory. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you, that's a gift. It's been a gift given to you that you should suffer for Jesus. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of god suffer by the power of god it takes the power of god to get through this kind of suffering this kind of persecution second timothy 2 3 share in suffering as a good soldier of christ jesus first thessalonians 3 3 then no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this we are destined for afflictions James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, there's the good news, glory. So suffering now, glory later. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. There's again another indication of glory. The Spirit of glory rests upon you. The Holy Spirit. 
Now, I can read these verses, but I want to tell you something. I don't know. I, I, know, I know it would have to be the grace of God to go through the suffering that these early church Christians went through. I don't know how they did it. But they have set an example for us. Even as they set an example for Timothy, if it comes upon us that we're going to be persecuted, we have just got to go through it with joy or waiting for the glory that's at the end. 2 Timothy 3.13, While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Paul continues here his theme in the first nine verses of the chapter where the last days are evil, and he's, and during these evil last days we've got evil people and impostors going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, because people who are deceived love to deceive others. They're not satisfied with just believing a falsehood. They've got to convince everybody else. As Ellison says, those who are, are entrapped in sin love to entrap others. Misery loves company. They want somebody to justify what they're doing, so they need some other people on their side, so they're going to talk them into it. Have you ever noticed people that do drugs or alcohol? Let's say, how about drinking? They just constantly urge you, don't you want to drink? Don't you want to drink? No, I'm an alcoholic. I go to an AA meeting every week. Ah, oh, one little beer ain't going to hurt you. They just can't stand the fact that you're not drinking. Same thing with doing drugs or whatever else. You mean you're going to keep your girlfriend a virgin? What's the matter with you? Constantly putting pressure on people to sin because they don't like being alone in their sin. Now, Paul tells Timothy evil people will go on from bad to worse. He's talking not in general about all evil people, but I must say I think it's true of all evil people. If they don't repent, they usually go from bad to worse. <laughs> but he's referring to specifically to those who profess a form of godliness with no power, namely those false Gnostic and Jewish legalistic false teachers. We go now to verse 14, 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, when Paul tells Timothy, you know from whom you learned it, who's he talking about? Who did Timothy learn the gospel from? Well, it could have been Paul. It could have been Paul and the other apostles were with Paul as Timothy traveled on the missionary journey, second and third journey. Could, this is what John Gill believes. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, on the other hand, it could be Eunice, his mother Eunice, and his grandmother Lois, or it could have been all three of the above, all of the above, or some of the above. So we don't know who Timothy learned the gospel from precisely, but we know that he learned it from his mentors. Paul says, continue in it. Now, you know this idea, continue, that means don't backslide. You know, I am so sick and tired of these Christian musicians have some prominent member of their band get up i don't believe in god anymore how about the kiss dating goodbye guy what a disgrace i forgot his name now but he wrote those books i kissed dating goodbye and then he decides he's just going to renounce the faith you know it's, it's bad enough for you to individually commit spiritual shipwreck but oh no you've got to drag down all the people that you've influenced and been a role model to you want to drag them down too whatever your name is i wish i could remember his name now Probably a good thing I don't remember his name, so I won't mention it on the tape here. But every time I hear something like that, I have a picture in my mind. It's a dog. He's just thrown up, and the dog goes over there and slops up his own vomit for a good meal. That's what it, that's what people who renounce their... Are they crazy? Jesus suffers unimaginable suffering on the cross to save us from our sins, and then we say, no, I got something better to do. I'm going to believe something better that's out there. Like, what would that be, for example? Well, Paul says, continue in. And, of course, there are pressures that cause people to backslide. And Timothy was probably having pressures, too, to compromise because these people, I'm sure, were nasty, these heretics he was dealing with. But Paul says, keep on keeping on, just like I've endured. I had patience. He mentioned 
from in the midst of all those persecutions in the previous couple of verses, he said, I endured through them all. Well, you do too, Timothy. You continue on. What you have learned and what you have firmly believed. You didn't just learn it halfway. You firmly believed it. John Gill says, knowing that Timothy had learned what he had learned from so great an apostle as Paul, therefore, Timothy should continue on. This shows the importance of teachers in a person's Christian life. Paul, other apostles, Eunice, his mother, Lois, all have an influence on Timothy, and the influence was great. We go to verse 15, 2 Timothy 3. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Ellison points out that it's unclear whether Timothy's spiritual training was in Judaism or Christianity, because from childhood he was acquainted with the sacred writings. That has to be the Old Testament. As Ellison and Gill point out, here's what Barnes says, quote, the Old Testament for the New Testament was not then written. So obviously, he's well, he's probably talking about the, the Old Testament scriptures because this is the late 60s and maybe the Old Testament was gathered, the New Testament scriptures were gathered together by then canonically or getting ready to, probably not. But that's not what Paul says. He's not talking about now. He says, from childhood you have been equated. So from childhood, that would have to be the Old Testament scriptures. Now, even the Old Testament scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus because they pointed forward to Jesus. The types, the shadows, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the prophecies, everything points toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I love the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times covenant theologians point out to people that are new covenant theologians who say that we need to be under the law of Christ and not under the law of Moses. And they say because of that stance, we therefore denigrate the Old Testament. Nonsense. I'm not under the law of Moses, but that doesn't mean I can't look at those types and prophecies and say, wow, that's great. Look at God's plan of salvation. How he moved from Abraham to Moses to Jesus. But I'm under Jesus now. Abraham and Moses. Well, Abraham, I guess, is not over, but Moses is. Abraham's not over because he was fulfilled in Jesus. I guess you can put it that way, as was Moses. We go to verse 16 and 17. We'll finish up. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul says the scripture is breathed out, he doesn't state how the scripture is breathed out, but he does state the who and the why. He says, it was breathed out by whom? God. And he says, why? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. But unfortunately, we love to get balled up in the question of how does God breathe out the scripture? Well, breathe out. What does breathe out mean? It means inspired. That's the English word inspired, breathe out. ASV, KJV, and the revised version have inspired in their translation, actually. ESV has breathed out. Now, what that does not mean, it doesn't mean that Jesus dictated it the scriptures by taking the apostles, the scripture writers, and turning them into zombies and forcing their hands to go up and down and write the letters the way God wanted to. Of course not. He used the author's human style. The human style breaks through. I mean, I've read enough Paul where I can kind of recognize his style. It's pretty complicated. He doesn't like short sentences. I could tell you about that style, for example, whereas John's style is much easier. So they had their own style, but God inspired them anyway. He breathed out his scripture. Now, another false definition, in addition to dictation, is the liberal idea that God inspired the scripture by breathing it out, but he breathed it out mixed with human error. Now, I ask, why would God do that? Why would God breathe out error? 
Inspired used to mean inerrant, by the way, even in English theological circles, but the liberals ruined that word. They would say things like, well, the Bible's inspired the way a poet is inspired by nature, and the Bible inspires me and encourages me to more spiritual heights, but it's got errors in it. And so the conservatives had to add the word inerrancy to doctrinal formulations about the inspiration of the Scripture. So now it's inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture. Now, if you don't believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture, how profitable it is for teaching? Oh, well, you know, Paul, he says things like homosexuality is bad. Well, I don't want to believe in that. Or he says things like you shouldn't marry a non-Christian. Well, I don't want to believe in that. Oh, he says things like capital punishment is a good thing. Oh, I don't want to believe in that because that's Paul. He's just an apostle. He's not Jesus. Well, in order to deal with that objection, first of all, we've got to decide what all Scripture means. Is it Old Testament Scripture or is it New Testament Scripture? Well, the commentators split on that. Adam Clark, for example, says that these scriptures that Paul is talking about here is the Old Testament only. Let's read this quote, quotation, quote, The apostle is here beyond all controversy. Well, first of all, it's not beyond all controversy. John Gill is, believes exactly the opposite of Clark. He says it includes the New Testament scriptures. So, let me go back and read Clark again. The apostle is here, beyond all controversy, speaking of the writings of the Old Testament, which, because they came by divine inspiration, he terms the Holy Scriptures. And it is of them alone that this passage is to be understood. And although all the New Testament came by as direct an inspiration as the Old, yet it was, yet as it was not collected at that time, not indeed complete, the apostle could have no reference to it. So Clark says, yeah, the New Testament's inspired and inerrant, but Paul's not talking about that here. Well, that's, that's reasonable. But now John Gill takes the opposite approach, and he says, no, all Scripture includes both Old Testament and New Testament. Be- why? Because the greatest part of the New Testament had already been written at the time that Paul was writing Timothy. This is in the, in the mid-60s. I think I saw, there's a guy at Charlotte, in Reform Seminary in Charlotte, and whose name, unfortunately, I've forgotten, but his specialty is, can, is the canon. And I read some of his stuff on his website, and he says the canon was collected a lot earlier than a lot of people say. I think he said by 100 A.D., but let's just say by 200 A.D. it was all collected. And we're not quite there yet. We're in, in the 60s. But nonetheless, people did look at some of, of Paul's letters of Scripture because, remember, Peter's in that famous passage said some of Paul's writings are hard to understand as other scripture is hard to understand. So the early church recognized that the apostles were writing scripture. Now, whether Paul referred to his own writings or the Peter's writings or the apostles' writings here as scripture, I'm not really sure. Well, Jameson Fawcett and Brown agrees with Gill. He says this is talking about New Testament as well as Old Testament. Quote, most of the New Testament books were written when Paul wrote this, his latest epistle, so he includes in the clause, all scripture is God-inspired, not only the Old Testament, in which alone Timothy was taught when a child, but the New Testament books according as they were recognized in the churches, which had men gifted with the discerning of spirits, and so able to distinguish really inspired utterances, persons, and so their writings from spurious, from spurious writings. All right, so I'll leave that up in the air, but whether you want to complain about whether this all scripture includes New Testament scriptures or not. The New Testament scriptures were breathed out, inspired by God, and inerrant. If you start trying to tell God what his writings are and what's right and what's wrong, this is what liberals always do. Or Christians who buy into this crap, they start saying, well, you know, I don't like that scripture. I think I'll come up with a better idea. 
And so pretty soon they're disobeying the apostle. And Jesus said, if you receive my apostles, you receive me. If you reject my apostles, you reject me. So you reject what Paul says there because you don't like it. It's too hard for you. So the next thing you know, you, re you rebel against that truth. And you find another truth you're going to rebel. And pretty soon you've done spiral out of control. And the Bible, Bible has become nothing but an ancient collection of books that are uninteresting to you. Don't let liberals take your Bible away from you, folks. People died to get that Bible in your hands. And not only the prophets and the apostles who wrote much of the scriptures, many of them were killed or thrown in dungeons. Jeremiah, for example, Paul himself was killed. That's two-thirds of the New Testament. Peter was boiled in oil. I mean, these people died to get that Bible to you, and you're going to say, well, I don't believe that. I got something. I'm going to listen to what my secular humanist people in in the psychology profession say about raising children. Oh, we're not supposed to spank children now. Oh, that's because that's old-fashioned. It's in the Bible. Well, yeah, you throw the Bible out. Go ahead. But if you want to follow Christ and you want to follow Paul and you want to follow his pattern of faith and endurance, you need to believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God, is inspired and inerrant, and it's all profitable for teaching, including the passage where it says, spoil, spare the rod and spoil the child. Oh, I realize we have to interpret the Scripture. And I realize you could take that metaphorically and say, well, you, you don't discipline a kid. You don't, you spoil him. Well, okay, fine. I, you know, I'll leave room for di different interpretations of the Scripture because obviously there's things in the Scripture that we disagree on, but there's some things we don't disagree on. And if you want the areas of disagreement to shrink, you, if everybody believes that the Scripture is the source of our authority, well, then our areas of disagreement will shrink. But if pretty soon you start saying, well, the Scripture's not authoritative for me, and now you've got a million things you can disagree on. Scripture's good for reproof. If somebody's doing something wrong, you can show them the Scripture. Like, you know, every now and then you'll see these I know a guy years ago who said that adultery was sanctioned, that God was okay with that. Well, show them the Scripture. I mean, how hard is that to do? You know, and he says, well, I don't believe that. Well, then you don't believe Jesus, then do you? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is how you train people. Get the Bible in them, and they will have their warped flesh flushed from them as the Holy Spirit uses the Scripture to drive out the sin and the rebellion, and, their, and they will start ex exhibiting and experiencing progressive sanctification as they become conformed from one stage of glory to another stage of glory until God makes them into the beautiful creatures that God meant for us to be when he made us. And Paul finishes with verse 17 talking about the use of the scripture that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You want to be a minister of the gospel, you better know the Bible frontwards, backwards, sideways, up and down. Now notice here that all scripture is breathed out by God, Paul says. So that means that God inspired the scriptures also that's God the Father. God the Holy Spirit also inspired the scriptures. We read in Second Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So prophets are moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul says to Timothy that all scripture is useful for reproof. In verse 16, that shows that scriptures are not only good for right doctrine, but they're good for right practice too. It's not just words. When we read the scriptures, we need to think about obeying those words. Not only the talk that we hear from the scriptures, but the walk that we see exemplified in the scriptures, we ought to do that. For example, forgiveness, loving your enemy. You're not going to get that from some stupid psychologist. You're only going to get that from the word of God 
because the words of God are directed at Christians who have the Holy Spirit in them, who enable them to do the impossibly spiritual things that the law of Christ demands of us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, we will read how Paul encourages Timothy to preach the word in season and out. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.